HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Is there a reason why we value some cultures' foods more than others? Interesting question. We'll talk about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, since the 1850s, there have always been, there has always been, a high percentage of foreign-born workers in food-related occupations in American cities. And that has persisted, and it is true today. And yet... Not all of these people are restaurant owners. Not all of them serve the food they know, but many do. And that's a whole other issue as well. I'm very happy today to have with me Krishnendu Ray to talk about his newest book, The Ethnic Restaurateur. Krishnendu is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and president of the Association for the Study of Food and Society. He holds a master's degree in political science from Delhi University in India and received his Ph.D. in sociology from the State University of New York at Binghamton. Prior to joining the NYU faculty in 2005, Krishnendu was a faculty member and an acting associate dean for curriculum development at none other than the Culinary Institute of America. That really surprised me, Krish, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, Krish is one of the foremost food studies scholars, um, and, and his work can be read in many of his articles. And, uh, and he wrote also The Migrant's Table, Meals and Memories in Bengali-American Households, and uh, The Curried Cultures, which he edited with... Um, Tulasi, Tulasi Srinivas. Right, right. And that's on globalization of food in South Asia. And Krishna, I think that, uh, Krishnendu. That's fine. I want to call you Krishna (laughs) too. That's good. That's okay. Um, That the ethnic restaurateur um, is an interesting, interesting title, interesting topic. 
academic discussions, as it's been said, of ethnic food have tended to focus on the attitudes of the consumers. And we have not, as Americans necessarily, looked at the the reactions of the owners of the restaurants, of the people who do the cooking. But before we even get there, what I really wanted to um, to talk about, just to set the stage, mm-hmm. is the terminology, because it has tremendous sociological and psychological impact. When you say ethnic, when we say ethnic today, well, not everybody, ethnic doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. What are you talking about when you say ethnic? Exactly. Linda, that's a fantastic question. Because, uh, in fact, I use the term ethnic uh, in the same way, say, today you would use the term colored, or today you would, if you were to use the term, uh, say, Negro. It was descriptive. It was used at a particular point. It has a history. And, in fact, I think the term ethnic is dying right now because it tries to encapsulate too much. And everybody who is non-white non-Anglo in some ways. And and I think one of my bigger arguments in the book is this idea of ethnicity is not a fixed thing, that it has changed. For instance, Italians were considered ethnic, mm-hmm. uh, Jews were considered ethnic, and they're considered less and less ethnic now. Right. And uh, uh, ethnicity, the word itself, uh, came into play about the 1950s, mid-1950s, uh, in the field of journalism especially food journalism. Before that, what would just be foreign so or immigrant? So foreign or immigrant or uh, uh, what were some of the other uh, exotic sometimes. Exotic. You know, foreign, in fact, in, in the early uh, 20th century, when a uh, lot of the writing about German uh, restaurants uh, was a uh, very similar attitude we have had since the 1950s about ethnic. But, uh, I mean, today we would hardly consider it ethnic. So it's a changing category. It's a classification. I see ethnicity as a relationship, not a thing, between something that is the putative center, that is uncommented, unmarked, and some some relationship to the margin. So it has a sense of difference, sense of exoticism, sense of, and in this book I talk about, a sense of inferiority, cultural inferior, inferiority, but not complete lack of power. That's one of my arguments in the book, that even though what we call ethnic, and especially when classified, say, in comparison to uh, foreign elites, say, French cuisine. French cuisine, for instance, has never been considered ethnic. Never, been not considered even, ethnic. In, yeah. because they were the, I think, I was thinking about, and I think perhaps because it was the first cuisine to be codified, to be have written recipes, and... Uh, chefs cooking in whatever country they lived learned from the exalted French chefs. It is, it is. I think, the success of the professionalization mm. of uh, uh, that paradigm uh, is what made it at the center of the uh, profession. Although, for Americans, of course, it was something very different, that American chefs are still learning in some ways in the process of becoming uh, like French chefs and their location in their history. So, in fact, that reveals to you as to the the nature of that word, that because the French were always foreign in the American imagination, but never had that sense or taint of inferiority. Yeah. That's why I mm. use the term ethnic, and I start the book by saying, in fact, it is going out of fashion. 
and it will probably die over the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and it is already, for instance, the New York Times journalists have stopped using the word over the last five years already. Uh, and uh, But looking back at the history and its use of that word, this book is about that history, about, I would call it a historical sociology. It's based on interviews, it's based on current data, but also looks at the historical material. Right. Well, in fact, you, I mean, you, I got the figure 1850s from you because yes. that that in the book, that you have looked at the census data of, of all the chefs and restaurateurs. Yes, since that time. So yes, 1850, we have occupations data and birthplace, so we can match it. Uh, 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 it's assumed that, of course, before the 1850s, we had uh, the what I call the feeding occupations, baker, butcher, saloon keeper, tavern keeper, etc. We were mostly who were mostly foreign born and continue to be so. But from 1850, we for the first time have that data. Somebody's asking them, so what's your occupation? And where are you born? And we have that every 10 years. Of course, uh, interestingly, uh, nobody's counting, in fact, cooks uh, in 1850. Uh, Chefs, of course, are not even counted until, do not register until the 1980s, which also tells you occupations change. Even American chefs. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. No one one has been counted. In fact, cooks were mostly counted, were all subsumed under servants until 1910. So then the census category changes, which is called cooks except private. So if you're not a, if you're a private cook, you're subsumed under a servant. And if you're not a private cook, you begin to be counted in the 20th century. And in fact, chefs don't get counted until uh, the 1980s. Well, and that, I mean, that continued the, the, the percentage, the um, percentage of food workers or workers re- in the yeah, food-related yeah. I mean, so in New York City, uh, bakers, butchers, saloon keepers, we have almost 80, 90 percent nationally. We have about 50, 45, 50 to 45 percent uh, compared to what, for instance, compared to teachers and lawyers who are about 5 to 10 percent are mm-hmm. foreign-born. Mm-hmm. They are the occupations that are least foreign-born because they are language-dependent uh, and they are dependent on kind of local laws in the case of lawyers or in the case right. of Right, and that's, I wanted to bring yeah. that up that we yeah. um, we talk on my show a lot about um, immigration, food memories, and what do people bring with them, what do they go to initially is, is food because it fills a, a gap and something they're missing when they you know come to another country. Um, being a professional, and many of them are in the countries of origin, but as you mentioned, because of the language barriers, because of licensing laws, mm-hmm. you know, you talk to someone who is working as a cook, he said, well, yes, but I was an aeronautical engineer, you know, back in my country, but I can't do it here. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily engineers, yeah. we do, uh-huh. we do like exactly. the brain drain, but, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, there is, you know, that's, that's an issue as well. Yeah, some of the things that don't translate, right. uh, uh, partly the credential, partly the work, and it's sometimes that shapes the nature of the the food available often for instance you will see men doing a lot of this cooking and some of these men chinese men bangladeshi men uh, uh, who have not cooked at home uh, who have not cooked in the old context so they do it because the barriers to entry are lower mm-hmm. uh, hence it also uh, encourages a certain kind of cooking and what uh, chefs see as unprofessional or non-professional is a better word non-professional cooking anyway this whole book is um is a way to think about what happens to a field when it gets professionalized. You know, and so there's been a lot of discussion about the race and ethnic uh, question. Yeah, the, the, you know? the 
the restaurant kitchens have been politicized yeah. in that regard yeah. a lot. It, some it, for good reason, in mm-hmm. some cases, very many cases. But there's a lot more going on about it. Yeah, and, for instance, one of the example. I mean, I think an important chapter in the book, uh, an important argument in the book, is when you professionalize a field. Uh, you usually tend to exclude women mm-hmm. and poor people who are doing it for free or for cheap. It has happened to every field. Uh, and in fact, one chapter in the book is compares it to the early history of medicine uh, in the end of the 19th century. Think about gynecology. Uh, think about uh, uh, internal medicine. I think about medical studies yes. done and, on the white male. Absolutely. And, and so, no so women were excluded uh, from the field. Mm-hmm. And partly that is, and that is my biggest argument that uh, it hasn't been picked up yet. When you professionalize a field, you uh, uh, put pressure on people who are doing it for free, in this case, women. Uh, it has happened in medicine. It happened in dentistry. It happened in school teaching. Today, we think of school teaching as primarily a feminized occupation. Mm-hmm. At the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, it was uh, overwhelmingly masculine occupation. It happened in my profession, in, 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 uh, in professing, in being a professor, uh, mostly white and mostly male. And then the slow transformation. It happened in dentistry. It happened in law. It happened in journalism. So my argument is the current phase of professionalization in uh, food is in fact linked to why when we make a list of, say, the 100 best chefs or the 500 best chefs, we barely count the women. We barely count, in fact, most people who would be seen as kind of what I call ethnics in some ways. But we do count. We do count Asian men. We do count Japanese restaurants. So it's not only a black and white question or a black, white, and a brown question. That's what's interesting. Mm. So today, for instance, Asian men are doing very well, especially if you're Japanese, if you're Taiwanese, but not if you're Chinese mainland. Mm -hmm. In none of those lists you see basically Chinese cuisine registering, not if you're South Asian, not if you're Sub-Saharan African. So So the argument is this idea of what cuisine and what part of culture counts in this discussion about haute cuisine is restrictive. And it is restrictive in a particular way. It is restrictive in not accounting for women's home cooking. That is a very important argument. It is restrictive in not accounting for mostly peasant cooking until we rediscover, until we rediscover it right. and then and then inflate it. And uh, becomes fashionable. It becomes fashionable yes. in some ways, the way polenta becomes, for instance, uh, and, and various kinds of curries, for instance. So, um, so it's, it changes. The, the field is changing. Uh, the map of what we value and what we don't value is changing. And this book tries to draw attention to that change over the last hundred years, in a sense, of American history. And as you pointed out, all, much of this change can be charted to the waves of migration as well. Exactly. So, for instance, uh, uh, the, uh, the early template of it is, say, the first 20 million or so Northern European migrants, mm-hmm. German, Irish, Scotch, uh, English, uh, the shape, uh, in fact, what we understood, what came, we came to understood, sub, uh, understand subsequently as American food, okay? And, say, uh, butter and, and dill and, uh, and meats and dairy and lager beer. And the first template is that. So the flavors, first... Flavors that were never... 
prevalent or even you know existing in this obviously in this not original in culture, terms of right. Native American cultures. Right. And then you have uh, between 1880 and 1924, you have another 20, 25 million uh, people coming in. But now they're coming in from the Mediterranean. They're coming in from Eastern European cities. So you have the Jewish urban migration from the Eastern European cities, and you have the Italian migration, uh, uh, Greek migration, and so they are transforming our taste. And that is in fact what retrospectively comes to be called the first ethnic cuisine, the mm-hmm. bagel, the pasta. In fact, in fact, pasta was so um, kind of different and new that we didn't even know how to spell it in the early recipes in the early commentary oh, <laughs> or p a s t e. Is right, how pasta right, is spelled. Right. Okay, it's it's born of a paste, and so that settles down. Uh, okay, through the 1950s and 60s, what we are, uh, what I think we're in the middle of is the next phase, is the next 30 million or so people between uh, 1965 and now, which has really busted open American tastes, uh, which are, which is largely Latin American and Asian. Uh, and of course, both these categories are huge. I mean, from El Salvadoran, Guatemalan, and then if you go even specific closer, Mexican, regional Mexican, Oaxacan, uh, you know, and similarly with Asia, of course, you're talking about Northern and Southern Chinese, you're talking about Canada, Cantonese, Shanghainese, Fujianese, and then various kinds of regional uh, Indian cuisines, for instance, are included in this. So what we are right in the middle of is a great trans- the second great transformation of American taste. And I think that's interesting. That is exciting. No other culture in the world, I think, ac- accommodates as much of this cultural difference as American culture does, which makes American food culture very interesting. And one of my arguments is that American elite should be less defensive about American food culture because it changes uh, compared to, for instance, Americans think French culture is great because the food culture doesn't change. A, that's not true. B, it changes relatively slowly. I think... probably with some rhetorical excess, I would say American culture, American food culture changes every 40 years. And that's a good thing. Hmm, absolutely. <laughs> well, in fact, we, you know, and what, and what are we, but a nation of immigrants? I mean, so that to call a particular food ethnic is what we should all be yes. you know, eating. It's all ethnic food, basically. Mm-hmm. It's all a conglomeration of all this, these different immigrant immigrants making up our country. But interesting, you say that the French, again, for instance, changes, the French cuisine changes very Mm -hmm. slowly. And yes, it was never demeaned. It was always exalted, head up on this Mm -hmm. particular pedestal. And yet again, where were the women? Look at that. Look at that. The men. It was only the men. And and women, in the French case, women were doing most of the cooking at home. That's right. So the gender argument is absolutely crucial to understanding this unevenness with which we value things and don't value some things. If you're doing it for free, if you're doing it for love, if you're doing it for care, we value it in one way, but we are not willing to pay for it in, in, in some ways in the public domain. Which, so, so in some ways, once that becomes kind of that exclusion work, sometimes you get inclusions as exceptions. Yeah, which harks back to my opening question, which you actually, a statement that you had uh, had written about i think in one of one of the articles and that is is there a reason that we value some cultures foods more than others or is it not about food excellent question uh, 
one of the one of the interesting things when I say when I map, uh, I do two things. I map popularity of certain foods. So we have we count the number of times you have say Chinese restaurant, Chinese food mentioned, or Italian food or Jewish food mentioned in any of the major American newspapers, or 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 these various guidebooks that emerge in the nineteen through the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, like Zagat's and Michelin, etc. What you get is there's a measure of popularity. So there's a lot of noise. For instance, Chinese food is a good example. There's a lot of discussion about it, but a lot of the discussion is how terrible it is or how MSG makes me sick or or how filthy it is. And some of it is also how interesting it is and how new it is. Okay, And so there is a so I try to count these things by measuring a kind of a popularity. Then I look at price to count prestige. If price is a surrogate for prestige, what happens? And what happens is this. Of course, French does very well, or what used to be called continental does very right. well. It's, it's, it's a cuisine that is dying right now. I think by the last count, there were five very expensive. Stuffy, old school, uh, yes. old fashioned. Yeah, and maybe it'll come back. I mean, this is the funny thing about uh, fashion is it kind of there's a retro quality to it too. Um, uh, Italian food has been obviously climbing in terms of average price. Okay, you can you can do well in a cheap Italian pizzeria or you can do well in a fancy Italian place. That's relatively recent. That's about since the 1970s, again with some exception. New American cuisine, the idea that this is something new, that Americans have a cuisine, Americans have chefs who work in that domain, is again emerging, I would say, uh, since Four Seasons, since, of course, Chez Panisse, you can say 19, you can give it a symbolic date, 1971. About the seven, uh, yeah, yeah, mid-70s, yeah, early uh, mid-70s. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then that begins to uh, register in, in, in some ways. Uh, Japanese, that is interesting and fascinating, which leads yeah. to the question, what is it? Uh, Jap- Japanese uh, uh, restaurants become some of the most expensive restaurants, most prestigious in terms of food. And I think it has very little to do with food. It has to do with the respect we have for the Japanese economy mm. and Japanese culture in general. So my argument there is, it's a depressing argument that in fact culture follows capital. And China is the opposite. Today, we mostly have cheap Chinese food, mostly cooked by poor Chinese immigrants. And our idea of China is that it is about cheap products, not about high quality products. By the way, we used to think the same about the Japanese Mm. in the 1950s. (laughs) And that changed with the car and after the car economy when the Japanese moved up in the value chain. I think that's exactly what's going to happen uh, with the Chinese is as they move up the value chain, if their economy keeps growing which also has a second impact, which is very important. Poor migrants stop leaving the country, as it happened with Japan, as it happened with Italy, as it happened with Greece. And then I think our respect for that culture goes up. Okay, When we stop seeing poor immigrants as representative of that culture. So my argument is this complex argument. Food matters but not ma- does not matter as much as we think it does. Our judgment of value is linked to other things, which is linked to capital, which is linked to social networks, which is linked to what we value in that culture. Like I think part of the value of Indian restaurants right now, especially the new style Indian restaurants, are linked to the fact that American middle classes are coming to engage with middle class professionals like me, like their physician, for instance. Okay, And because 
because of that, there's a hunger to engage with that culture. That's why, for instance, out of, say, what, 300 Indian restaurants in New York City, I would say 280 are cheap curry houses. Right. And about 15, 20 are this mid-market, upper market, and you will see and then that. And you have a couple high-end. And, high and end. You, you can see some yeah. of that engagement. Yeah. But again, none of it, most of it, not cooking by women, but mostly men. Hmm. Often by chefs, so right. there's a gender quali- uh, relationship, relationship to it, and also relationship of class that is very important. And so, and as you had also, I think, written elsewhere that that you know the the better a country does, as you just mentioned, economically, the more we respect their. And we want to learn about their the culture. culture. Right. We, we learn right. about especially the refined elements of their culture, and uh, and cannot get away by merely dismissing it as the uh, kind of a trivial, weak, peasant, uh, working class uh, kind of uh, cuisines. Right. Well, we have so much more to discuss but um, about present day uh, ethnic, if you will, the new or, or new yeah, American cooking. New, right? new American or new immigrant, American. immigrant cuisine. That's right. Kind of a, um, but we're going to take, word. before we get there, we're going to take a short break. So stay with us. just your garden it's the way you live and there's so much to know but you have help bonnie plants now with bonnie's app homegrown you can learn about veggie and herb varieties track and record your garden with photos and notes share on facebook and twitter and so much more how'd you ever grow without it get homegrown with bonnie plants for iphone and android the more you know the better you can grow with bonnie Hi, we're back with The Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Krishnendu Ray, um, the author of The Ethnic Restaurateur. And, Krish, you were just talking about Indian restaurants and how still primarily they are they tend to be the cheaper across the country. Mm-hmm. And, and, in fact, all these restaurants we talk about, it's now coast to coast mm-hmm. uh, as far as the, um, the immigrant population and this the, the, the foreign cuisine mm-hmm. that they bring. Um, and interesting for you, uh, studying sociology in general, and I don't think it was always about food. What led you to food? You came here as a young student, okay? Yes, yes. Uh, hungry for food, maybe? <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a good way of thinking about, in fact, also the larger argument I'm making. I came to the United States as a graduate student. And uh, and my my work was supposed to be on uh, the the reason the only place I applied to was SUNY Binghamton is because it had a very very interesting group of professors working on development and underdevelopment in terms of economic development and underdevelopment. And my work was supposed to be on economic development and underdevelopment. That's the only place I applied. I got in. I was lucky to get in. I got, got five years of funding, and uh, I came to uh, United States. And of course, soon enough, I was assaulted by nostalgia. And nostalgia through food. And 
my first revelation, it shouldn't have been a revelation now looking back, was that I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to cook Indian food. And, and, and the second was more, which, which changed my work, which was, wow, I don't know how to cook, but I had never thought about it. And all the work of all the women and the servants had been invisible to me. And so that one was my biggest realization. Says, wow, I was, I was supposed to be progressive. I was doing all this radical politics, working on minimum wage uh, issues, etc. in India. But I, all this work that had gone into feeding me for 25 years or so was invisible to me. So that, I said, wow, that's invisible. So I went and talked to my advisor. I said, I think I'm going to work on food. And uh, I had just read Laura Shapiro's Perfection Salad. I mm-hmm. was like startled by its beauty. Uh, I had read uh, Cooking Cuisine and Class by Jack Goody, an anthropologist working in, in Africa. And I went to my advisor. I said, I want to uh, 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 change my dissertation on food. He says, uh, very interesting. Don't do it. No one is going to give you a job. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, he was right in that context, but the world changed. For instance, uh, then the uh, Culinary Institute of America advertised in the Chronicle of Higher Education for the first time for somebody who had a PhD or was working on a PhD on food and they would like to hire because the character of the Culinary Institute was changing. It changed, that. yes. And it was right. imaginative. With a lot of foresight, they realized that you not only need to know how to cook, but you need to understand culture and then questions of sustainability, etc., etc. So uh, my advisor said, uh, apply and, and, and see. I said, oh, I, I, I probably, I possibly can't get that job, but I would be thrilled if I did because it would be like for a musician to go and teach at Juilliard. For me, that was the excitement. And I just happened to go for the interview and the dean happened to be a massive Indophile who had been in to yoga and everything else. I didn't know anything about yoga, uh, <laughs> even though I'm Indian. Uh, but I think my being Indian uh, was uh, at least one compelling uh, reason I uh, got that job, <laughs> at, which tells you, again, this thing about uh, uh, what we were talking about before, about class, about credentials. I'm, for instance, so this book is about ethnicity. This book is about color and class. And it's also about gender. And the fact that uh, as a South Asian male, all this work, gendered work, had been invisible to me, reveals something which made cooking a lot more interesting for me to study. And I had to learn from various people. And it's, you also had to learn how to cook to I feed to yourself. <laughs> and I was terrible at first. And, uh, but uh, I got better with each passing day, in fact. And I, and I think uh, I write in the book that uh, I got a credibility because now I could, uh, other than words, I could do something for, my grad, uh, for grad students, for my professors. And we started cooking together, uh, eating together. And of course, I was the only one lucky enough to have changed my topic to studying food. So I could now argue <laughs> about food and, and uh, that would eventually pay me uh, back in terms of a job. And so that, that was kind of fascinating. That's right. you know? That's right. And I'll, I'll give you one last related point on that is, um, for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm a very kind of relatively dark skinned Indian. So when I say color, uh, it has to be seen through the prism also of class. The difference between yes. me as a professor Okay, is what I can say, uh, what I can write, because I can write in English. That makes all the difference, other than gender. If there's one thing that makes the biggest difference in the restaurant industry is whether you can speak and, uh, and, and write in English. 
If you do that, you have all the advantages. So my class advantage in that completely compensates for, overcompensates, takes care of any disadvantage I might have about color, and that's important. No, I okay. think I think you're absolutely right, and it's an issue that probably a lot of people don't necessarily talk about or think yeah. about. Mm-hmm. I, with you, I think people perceive you first and foremost as a professor yes. in your position, mm-hmm. and they go, oh yeah, by the way, he's an Indian. Yes. Didn't, and that, yeah. you know. Because I can play with those languages off my yeah. discipline. I get the prestige of the academy behind me. In that sense, I'm just not any immigrant. I'm an immigrant. That's but right. I come with certain kind of advantages and privileges. And so this book is about that difference. Okay, Sometimes it is color. Sometimes it is not color at all. Sometimes it's class. And sometimes it is neither color nor class. Sometimes it's gender. And one has to be smart enough to look at data and historically, and see what counts for what, when. That's what this book is about. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, it's just to veer off of that a little bit onto um, immigrant workers, mm-hmm. in today, which, of course, there was never really a great wave of population in some of the countries that, of, for the residents that we were receiving. Let's mm-hmm. take Italy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now there is. Mm-hmm. And in the kitchens of the restaurants in some of these, um, particularly Western European mm-hmm. cities, mm-hmm. you find a lot of foreign immigrants Absolutely. in those countries. Absolutely. Let's say um, African workers in the in, kitchens in, in, of yeah. Indian and yeah. yeah, French and Italian, which you know fact. never was before. So that brings me then to, um, you know, what we we know the American perception of some of these immigrant kitchens is exotic, the exotic Mm. food, okay? And then we Mm. come to learn to like the tastes and, you know, initially, I think more so now than ever ever, that we have opened our our palates Mm -hmm. and our minds Mm. to um, a lot of these um, foreign tastes. Um, Let's talk about taste and the perception from the other side, Mm -hmm. the perception of the foreign restaurateur Mm -hmm. and looking at the Americans, the American-born, you know, mm-hmm, who come mm-hmm. into their restaurants and eat the food, and do they, as we always say, oh, they've dumbed it down for American mm-hmm. palates, you know. And taste, you you talk about taste in two different ways, the literal and the aesthetic. Um, let's let's talk about that. Excellent. So I, I think that's uh, a very interesting thing that's going on right now, which opens up the world of highfalutin aesthetic taste, which is philosophical taste, which has always worked in many parts of the world, including India and in the West, to exclude literal taste, to exclude food. That food is somehow not worth talking about. If you're talking about it, if you're taking pictures of it, we should be dismissing it as food porn. That's why, in fact, I don't like that. Uh, 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 But art you can talk about, architecture you can talk about, okay? Again, so it has usually been visual or oral, they can hear music we should talk about. But somehow, taste, touch is out of bounds. In fact, those are the domains in which literal taste works. And I think Mm -hmm. this opening up of the discussion, we should not be dismissing this discussion as, oh, that's just food porn. All this conversation about food is trivial and not worth attending to. And one of my larger arguments in the book is that is because, in fact, mostly it is superior men from superior classes, be it in India or in Europe, 
who have basically theorized away the necessity of discussing literal taste because it's mostly women and mostly the uh, 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 disenfranchised who were playing with food. So that was not worth thinking about. That was not talk worth talking about. And we should be talking about the art or the music that only some men and some kinds of men are making or doing. I love that, that we are now undermining this hierarchy of taste between literal taste and aesthetic taste. And I think that's a democratic opening, and I think that's a good thing, and I think that's a very interesting thing that's happening in American cities and makes it really exciting. It is exciting, and it's and it, now with um, the Internet and social media, it's... It is spreading across the world, and it's and it's really putting. I think that's making it a more level playing field as well. People are disputing taste mm-hmm. for good reason, and it's a good thing. Literal taste and aesthetic taste, and that's fantastic. Mm. It's that's it's a, a great a great other a whole other topic, a whole other show, a whole other you know we can really go into that. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't. We touched briefly on the um, the politicization of of ethnic cuisines using that word ethnic again and yes that should go away soon and it will um and and that is now we have because we have so many uh, the other thing is we have so many second generation mm-hmm. or for a real first generation americans mm-hmm. who are cooking food of their families that they grew up with and maybe putting their own twist mm-hmm. to it and you know very good chefs no matter what they would cook very good food and they're cooking this food and then some people are saying well yes but you are that's our culture and you are bastardizing or you know or appropriating our culture and you're not cooking a true authentic and i hate the word authentic there's no authenticity in food that should be abandoned oh, yeah, but um that it is a discussion that's out there, and I think it's an important one. Mm-hmm. It, but within certain within certain realms. Yeah. No. I. I, I the, again, that's a, I think a discussion that's opening up. I'm all for hybridity, bastardization, and translation. Okay. And uh, and yes, it is worth thinking about appropriation, uh, uh, but. Uh, you don't want to fall into the trap of trying to police the cultural politics of what you're going to cook and eat. And I think that's uh, counterproductive. And uh, the the richness of the discussion is precisely because we have this robust opening up of the field. And I think it's symptomatic of that. That's the good side of it. The downside of it is it's kind of twofold. One, it becomes too shrill to be having a conversation that anybody is listening to anyone else. And that has been some of the tragedy of... uh, what I've written in the book, people often begin to argue with me about the book without having read the book because they are kind of uh, there's that shrillness to it mm-hmm. that seems to be accentuated in social media where you want to say kind of clickbait worthy, very dramatic thing and lose the nuance of an argument. So it is it's worth talking about the cultural politics without turning it shrill. And I think in fact, creativity enters the world through hybridization. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's how we get newness in the world. And translation is a terrific thing, translating other people's food. But we should do translating like we do real translating with words, which is get familiar with the language, get familiar with the literature, engage with the idiom, both the culinary idiom and the linguistic idiom. And these two are connected, in fact, taste and talk. 
So a real engagement with another's culture, I think, is welcome and invites real engagement with another. And that is at the heart of an ethical relationship. Right. And also the, the field of culinary history, I find, uh-huh. has opened, has blossomed. I mean, you had people, you know, your professor kind of laughed at you at your at your intent and try to form a, an education in culinary history back in the 70s and early 80s. And it was, you know, it was not scholarly. It was not a scholarly pursuit. I mean, you, you, you guys were it. the kind of foremothers of this. Kind yeah. of, of, and in fact, also think about it. How many women? Right. Did that, right. and then also there's an attention to how ma- how many men are getting all this attention, including people like me. Right. Okay, yeah. which is gender is very crucial to this right. discussion. And now that we have such you know such a wide audience for mm-hmm. culinary history, people are very very much interested in it. That relates to the whole thing about the you know the cultural exploration, and, and you said becoming familiar with the yes. terms, becoming familiar with the with the language, and I think most people are are really very um, intent upon learning as much as they can about the food that they intend to create or hybridize. They're not just doing this haphazardly. Absolutely. And that's interesting and that's promising. And we shouldn't be, uh, it's not productive to be building walls about what you can cook and what you can eat. Uh, But it has to be done with that kind of uh, authenticity, intensity, integrity, basically, with uh, with, uh, engagement and sympathy. All right. So much to think about. So many, so many interesting questions involved in the whole thought of what, in what a what a world we live in, and what a country we are. That in America, and now that has that has translated to all other countries. That you know. I mean, I'll give you an example. The world's a small place, and we travel back and yeah. forth. And India, India is a terrific example. In India, uh, as a middle class people, very close minded about what we eat. I mean, we think Indian food. Indians think Indian food is, for instance, mostly vegetarian. It's not true. Most Indians are, in fact, not vegetarian. It's, most of it is fish and rice culture on the edges of India. Okay, from the mountains of India. How many times do we think of Indian food and we think of mushrooms? We think of uh, soy sauce, for instance, northeastern India. Okay, mm. Indians are just beginning to engage with. Indians who don't come out of the plains, who are not the dominant, what I call the Hindu-Hindi complex of cookery. And so this is true about many cultures, uh, but in fact probably more true about other cultures that they've been much more close-minded and accounted less for the internal migration and the transnational migration, that Americans have been better attuned to at least since, I would say, Oscar Handlin's Uprooted, which is this history uh, book, he said, American history is the history of immigrants. Before that, the idea was that American history is a history of the frontier and our engagement with the frontier. And he transformed that field so much so that now, for instance, it is is a commonplace to say, well, American history is a history of immigration. And that has transformed the field of food culture, too. So we've had a head start on some of the other countries in terms of our food culture. Well, thank you so much, Krishnanda, for sharing your time and and certainly all your expertise. I know you've been working in one way or another on this book for for a long time, time, right? And and the research is is phenomenal, and it's really a very a very interesting book and a lot of good information. As always, you are very good at sharing and translating that information to the ear of those of us who don't know quite as much about it. And I thank you so much. Thanks Thanks for being my guest. Thank you. And thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.